According to uh, recent studies on undergraduate degrees conferred in the United States, there has been a decline in the discipline of history. History accounted for 2.24% of the degrees conferred in 2007, uh, but just a handful of years later in 2011, only 2.02%. On the one hand, this is not surprising with all of the recent interest in advancements in science and math and technology. On the other hand, this is disconcerting for the careful study of history helps to guard us from a dangerous kind of chronological snobbery. Christianity has, from its very beginning, been a religion based in history. After all, first words on the first page of the Bible open with a historical marker. The words, in the beginning, are among other things a manner of recording and recounting history. History has long been important to Christians and it ought to remain important to us. We must keep a keen eye on the past even as we look with hope to the future. This is what we hope to do this morning as we study Numbers chapter 20 in God's Word. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 20. If you're following along in one of the Bibles provided, you can find the beginning of the passage, I believe, on page 128. 128. And if that's wrong, feel free to shout out the correct number. While you're turning there, allow me to remind us of what we've studied so far in the book of Numbers. And try to take a big picture look at the Bible itself. The Bible as you may know, is all about the Lord Jesus Christ redeeming a people for Himself and bringing them safely home to the promised land of heaven. That message is foreshadowed and revealed in seed form in the Old Testament. Throughout our study in the book of Numbers, we've been seeing how that is precisely the case. Having already uh, used Moses to redeem the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, in the book of Numbers, we now see the Lord begin to use Moses to lead Israel to the earthly promised land of Canaan. This is the seed form of what we will see as the full flower in the New Testament. Throughout the course of our study of the book of Numbers, we've seen Israel struggle along the way, along this journey. Their journey has been fraught with grumbling and complaining and rebellion. And of course, since we live so many centuries after these events, it's difficult for us to identify with Israel's grumbling and complaining and rebellion, isn't it? No, of course not. We struggle with these things too, don't we? In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, that these things took place as examples for us. The events in the book of Numbers have been written down for our learning. Numbers 20 is a sobering chapter. In Numbers 20, we are told of three deaths. First, Miriam dies. Then we're told that Moses will die. And finally, Aaron dies. This is hugely significant, for these were three important figures in this era for the people of Israel. And we need to feel the weight of these events if we are to feel the weight of glory that this chapter looks forward to. So let me set before you now what I think is the main point of Numbers 20. So if you're looking for 
the main thrust of what the author is trying to communicate in Numbers chapter 20, this is what I think it is. Unbelief leads to death. It, it leads to being deemed unwelcome in the promised land. Unbelief leads to being deemed unwelcome in the promised land. That is what Numbers 20 teaches us. And this is a hugely important lesson for the people of Israel. They would need to remember this history when they eventually did enter the promised land of Canaan. As you may know, Israel would, would one day live in the promised land. But because of their unbelief, God would deem them as unwelcome in the promised land. And so they were sent off into exile. That's what happened with Adam and Eve right at the beginning of the Bible. Because of their unbelief, they were deemed unwelcome in the garden. They were sent out of the garden. They were exiled from God's presence. The people of Israel needed to learn from this history. The generation who came up after Miriam and Moses and Aaron needed to learn from this history so that they would not repeat it. In fact, that is the narrative tone of this chapter. The events of this chapter are described in terms of previous events of past history. And the purpose for describing them in terms of previous history was to communicate to the generation that came after Miriam and Moses and Aaron that they should not continue on in the unbelief of the generation that preceded them. They should learn from their parents. We're going to study these three sections of Numbers 20 under these three headings. First, what's past is prologue. Second, the road already taken. And third, what has been will not always be. I think you can find a, that on the handout provided in the bulletin. Let's turn now and consider our first point. What's past is prologue. And as we do, read Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 to 13. Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 to 13. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vine or pomegranates. And there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them, Hear now you rebels. 
Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them He showed Himself holy. Now as we begin to read the opening of Numbers chapter 20, and the announcement of Miriam's death, we ought to immediately recall what we learned in the past, just one chapter before. In Numbers 19, the people of Israel were instructed on how to handle the bodies of those who had died in the wilderness. Touching a dead body made one ceremonially unclean. And so one would have to go through a a process of, of ritual cleansing in order to be received back into the camp and back into the worship of the tabernacle. Miriam's death should also remind us of the wider context of the book of Numbers as well. Death is mentioned over and over again in the ten chapters leading up to Numbers 20. And the main reason it's mentioned over and over again in in the ten chapters leading up to Numbers 20 is because the Lord promised the people of Israel that a whole generation of people would die in the wilderness as they wandered for 40 years. Why? Why why would a whole generation die and why were they wandering in the wilderness? Well, they were hoping to enter the land that God had promised to give Abraham and his offspring. The Lord delivered them from Egypt, not just to bring them into a wilderness and wander around, but actually to bring them in to the promised land. But once they started on their journey and got to the edge of the promised land, and saw the strength of the inhabitants of the land, they disobeyed the voice of the Lord and refused to enter into the promised land. In short, they did not believe that God could safely lead them in. The command to wander and the promise of death of a whole generation was the Lord's judgment on Israel's unbelief. And yet, in God's mercy... The Lord also promised the people of Israel that their little ones, their children, would, after a period of 40 years, enter the promised land. Miriam's death reminds us of all of this. And it also prepares us for what we read about in verses 2 through 13. In those verses, in verses 2 through 13 of Numbers chapter 20, we're given an explanation as to why Moses won't enter the promised land. He too will die outside of the promised land. Now it is true that the the people of Israel are kind of the most immediate focus of these verses. But they're not the primary focus. And hopefully we'll see that shortly. The people of Israel, they, as we see here, once again complain about God's providence. They've, They've done this before. We've seen this in the past. Just before the people of Israel rebelled against the Lord in Numbers 14... Uh, and in unbelief, kind of refused to enter the land. Just a, a few chapters before that, they complained about food. In Numbers 11, 
we're told that the Lord supplied them with manna from heaven, but they wanted meat, so they complained. Fast forward a few chapters to Numbers 14, and you'll find the people of Israel desiring to be back in Egypt. And what do we find here in Numbers 20? We find a replay of those past events, complaining about God's providence. This time they're complaining about water, desiring to be back in Egypt. You know, they had they'd done this in Exodus 17 as well. They had complained about water there as well. But while the author of Numbers wants us to recall those past events, he clearly also wants us to see this as another occasion. So Israel once again complains about water. They express their desire to be back in Egypt there in verse 5. Though there are questions of why. Did you notice those in verses 4 and 5? There are questions of why. Though those may be rhetorical, I think they should still be answered. Why did God call Israel out of Egypt? Why, why did He free them from slavery? God did it to rescue them and to set before the nations of the world, them, the people of Israel, as a display of His glory and power. Israel, as a nation, was Yahweh's proof. It was God's proof that He alone was worthy of worship. And they were to worship Him. These events were proof that He was to be trusted and believed upon and obeyed. And Israel was to trust Him and believe Him and obey Him. He planned to bring Israel into the promised land of Canaan, but they refused to trust, believe, and obey Him. Their wandering in the wilderness was a direct result of their own rebellion and unbelief. And rather than let them die, them all die in the wilderness, God sustained them. He would spare those little children. Far from complaining, they should have, be, should have been giving thanks to God. He has proven Himself faithful to them, even in the face of their own sin. And what is Moses to do in the face of these complaints that he once again receives in the book of Numbers? Well, I love Moses' first reaction, and frankly, I wish that I followed his example more often. Do you notice what, what he and Aaron do? They take the matter to the Lord in prayer. How often do we do that? I know that I don't do that often enough. Prayer is a, a sign of humble dependence upon God and a recognition that we need His help. When complaints come your way, or when they rise in your heart, take them to the Lord in prayer. Learn from Moses and Aaron's example. Let's remember the truth of Philippians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. The Lord is at hand, which means He's near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Well, Moses and Aaron go and meet with God at the tabernacle. They, they fall on their faces, humbling themselves before Him. And in His kindness, God speaks to them. Now, here was, we must recognize that we are not Moses or Aaron. We're not the mediators of God's covenant for His people. And so we shouldn't expect to hear from God like they do. We do hear from God. But today we hear from God in and through 
His Word. This is where we hear our God speak to us. This is where God has definitively spoken to us. Something unique was occurring in this conversation between Moses and Aaron and the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses and He told them to go and speak to a rock. And that it would give water. How much faith would it take to believe that God would do that? To believe that if you spoke to a rock, the Lord would cause it to give water. At at one level, we, we might think to ourselves, that would take an incredible amount of faith in God to believe that He would do this. Such a miracle would be remarkable. At another level, the faith required for believing that God would do this miracle also seems incredibly small. After all, Moses is the one who recorded the creation account in Genesis 1. He's the one who recorded the fact that God spoke and created the universe and all that is in it. Moses is the one who saw God perform miracle after miracle in plague after plague in the face of Pharaoh. Moses saw God part the waters of the Red Sea and lead Israel out of Egypt. Moses saw God miraculously provide manna from heaven day after day in the wilderness. Moses saw the Lord open the ground up and swallow a massive group of people whole. How difficult would it be for the Lord who has done all of this and more to open up a rock and make water come out? How difficult would this be for the God who made the created order and can do with it as He pleases? Is this really that hard to believe? Well, it was hard for Moses to believe. In verse 10, we see Moses gather the people of Israel just as the Lord said. And then he spoke to them. He calls them rebels. And he was not wrong to do so. They were rebels. They were rebelling against the Lord with their grumbling. They were rebels with a past. In the past, they had rebelled against the Lord and refused to enter into the promised land of Canaan. Listen to what the Lord said to them in the past on that occasion. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? And now consider again what happens with Moses. He does not speak to the rock in faith. Instead, he strikes the rock in unbelief. How do we know this? Read verse 12 again. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Do you see what the narrative has been doing all along up to this point? It has been preparing us to see Moses in the same light as the people of Israel in their unbelief and rebellion. What's past really was prologue to what we read here. 
The author has been providing us with signals and cues from Israel's past rebellion in order to prepare us to see that the reason Moses will not enter the promised land is the same reason that Israel will not enter the promised land. Unbelief. The author is actually going to build on this motif. And do you remember who the author of Numbers is? It's Moses. No wonder a later contemporary would say of Moses that he was the meekest man of all the earth. Here is Moses laying bare for his readers, for us, his unbelief and its consequences. Here he records for us the Lord's audible and verbal reaction to his unbelief and sin. Why would he do that? Because he wanted the people of Israel to believe. He wrote numbers as if to say, we should have believed in the wilderness. And when you, the, the younger generation, that the Lord is preserving in the wilderness and promising to bring in to the promised land, when you get into the promised land, you need to believe Him there. You need to believe Him there or else you will face the same consequences for your unbelief. We did not make it in. You will. But if you do not believe in God and uphold Him as holy, you will be thrown out. How humble Moses was to use himself as a negative example. Who does that these days? Well, I think Christians should. Beware of preachers and Christians who only tell you the best things about themselves. Some time ago, I was uh, in a long conversation with a Christian who expressed grief and remorse over their sin. They, they shared with me their shame. And I thought to myself, here, here is a humble servant of Christ. Here is someone who really trusts in Jesus. Here is someone who cares more of what God thinks of them than what I think of them. Here is someone who humbles himself before the Lord. Are we willing to humble ourselves and let others into our lives and let them see the darkness of our hearts so that we may receive the comfort of Christ from them and so that they might learn from our negative example? Are, are, are we willing to humble ourselves before the Lord so that the Lord might be pleased to use our moments of unbelief and sin to actually encourage the faith? of others. Children, youth, young adults, do you confess your sin to your parents, to others? I'm, I'm guessing that you may want your, your parents and others to be convinced that you have real saving faith. And do you know what real saving faith looks like? It doesn't look like pointing out all the times that you've been holy and righteous and good. Real saving faith looks like humble confession and repentance of sin. It looks like trusting in Jesus Christ alone as your only hope in life and in death. Be careful not to confuse self-righteousness with receiving 
Christ's righteousness by faith. Talk with your parents tonight or this afternoon or this evening about what real saving faith looks like. You know, I read, I read Numbers 20, uh, this passage, to my children earlier in the week. And one of them astutely raised the question, so does, does Moses make it to heaven? Is Moses in heaven? It's an obvious question, isn't it? Moses didn't make it into the promised land of Canaan. So did he make it into the promised land of heaven? I think that Moses possessed real saving faith. And I think that we can see something of that in his own humble confession of his sin here. But here's what I told my children. Yes, Moses made it into the promised land of heaven. Moses, he's in that great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And so he is held out to us as an example of whom we should follow in our faith. And while the vast majority of Moses' life was marked by faith, Moses, like all of us, have moments of unbelief and sin. We still wage war in our hearts. Even though we might be redeemed by God and indwelt by His Spirit, we still wage war in our hearts against unbelief and sin. Those moments of unbelief and sin still have earthly consequences. They had earthly consequences for Moses. And through it, the Lord showed Himself holy. Moses did not uphold the Lord as holy, as different than all the other gods out there, the false gods out there. Moses didn't show that God, that he believed that God could do this and would do this. And yet, the Lord still showed Himself holy. That's something that we can't miss about these events. In them, we see that God is holy. He is unlike us. He is perfectly righteous, just, and good. He is perfectly loving, wise, and true. Unbelief is failing to trust in God as holy. It is failing to trust that God will do what He says. How were the people of Israel to trust in God as holy and walk in His ways if their leaders, those who were set before them as examples, didn't? Because God is perfectly holy, He cannot let sin and unbelief go unpunished. Not even Moses and Aaron's sin and unbelief. You know, your position in society, in government, in your workplace, in your home, even in the church, perhaps even especially in the church, does not mean that our earthly sin will be without consequence in this life. The past punishment that God promised on the Exodus generation would also come to pass on the leaders of the people of Israel. In fact, it had already begun with Miriam's death. Moses' unbelief is not the only failure of the past that is taking place in the present of Numbers 20. In Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 to 21, we see another failure of the people of Israel recycled and replayed. Here we see Moses' attempt to proceed down a path that the people of Israel have already attempted and failed. So let's turn now and consider our second point, the road already taken. And as we do, read Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 to 21. Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 to 21. 
Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, You know all the hardship that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we lived in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried to the Lord, He heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please, let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, You shall not pass through, lest I come out with a sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway. If we drink your water, drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot. Nothing more. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. Now, when we, we read these verses, we should immediately ask ourselves, why is this here? This seems like an odd place to record an odd event. Israel is refused passage through Edom. Now, in order to understand what is, is happening in this request and its refusal, uh, we need to understand and remember what has already happened. A few moments ago, I mentioned that Moses is presented in the same light as the people of Israel in their unbelief and rebellion. The author has been providing us with signals and cues from Israel's past rebellion in order to prepare us to see that the reason Moses will not enter the Promised Land is the same reason that Israel will not enter the Promised Land. And I mentioned that that the author, Moses, was actually going to build on this motif. He's going to continue to lay out his unbelief and rebellion. This is the parallel between Israel's past and Moses' present. In these verses, we have the building of that picture. Do you remember what happened after the people of Israel rebelled against the Lord in unbelief in Numbers 14? After uh, the Lord told them that they would spend the next 40 years in the wilderness and die, what did they do? They said, we're not going to go in. The Lord said, you're not going to go in for 40 years. And they said, on second thought, we should actually try and go in like right now. And so they they tried to go in. They immediately tried to enter into the promised land. They tried to enter into another land. In other words, they tried to take the land by force. And what happened? They refused entrance to the promised land by a strong army. They were turned away. So if the author, if Moses, is drawing connections to Israel's past and Moses' present in Numbers 20, what should follow next? If a refusal to enter the land is what followed after Israel's unbelief and rebellion, then what should follow after Moses' unbelief and rebellion? What should follow next is exactly what we read here with regard to Edom. The people of Israel should try and enter a land and be refused entry. And that's precisely what happens. But look back again at verse 14. Who's the one initiating this attempt to enter Edom? It's Moses. He's walking in Israel's path. Moses initiated this attempt without instruction from the Lord, just as the people of Israel did in Numbers 14. 
And part of the lesson of Numbers 14 was that you cannot take what only the Lord can give. The promised land was a gift that only the Lord could give. And yet Israel tried to take it in their own strength. And here Moses is learning that lesson too. He actually tries twice. Sends one request, he's told no. He tries again, and he's told no. What about us? Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, what does this mean for you and me? Well, one lesson is almost certainly this. Do not continue on in unbelief. That is the road that has already been traveled by too many. Israel, remember, doubled down on their unbelief. After rebelling against the Lord, they they doubled down on their unbelief and tried to enter the promised land without permission from the Lord. Moses effectively did the same thing. Both Israel and Moses kept trying to do things their own way rather than doing what the Lord said. They both tried to make their own path. So surely... Part of the lesson is for us is that we should not double down on our own unbelief and sin. Think back to your childhood for a moment. Because we we all do this. And it's easy for for me to remember my childhood and how I did this then. Uh, How many times uh, did you do something wrong and then double down on your sin by trying to cover it up with another? Perhaps you stole something. Again, this is not related to me at all. Uh, how many times have you, you, you stole something or you broke something or mistreated your sibling and then you were asked about it and then what happened? Did you double down on it by lying? No, I didn't do that. I didn't break that. I didn't hit my sister. I didn't do that. Do you remember how it only made matters worse? We ought not to continue in our unbelief and sin. But instead repent, believe, and uphold the Lord as holy before the eyes of others. We ought not take the road that has already been taken. We ought not take the road of unbelief. So far we've seen how past events have been brought to bear on the events of Numbers chapter 20. There's one more sobering event that we need to consider. And that's the death of Aaron. In Aaron's death, we're reminded of events and promises from the past. But here, we also need to take time to consider the wider biblical storyline. We need to consider that because of Jesus Christ. What has been will not always be. So let's turn now and consider our third point. What has been will not always be. And as we do, read Numbers chapter 20, verses 22 to 29. Numbers chapter 20, verses 22 to 29. And they journeyed from Kadesh, and the people of Israel, the whole congregation came to Mount Hor. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor, on the border of the land of Edom, Let Aaron be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land that I have given to the people of Israel. Because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them up to Mount Hor. 
and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son. And Aaron shall be gathered to his people and shall die there. Moses did as the Lord commanded. And they went up Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. And Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son. And Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. And when all the congregation saw that Aaron had perished, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron thirty days. Now one of the things that I did not dwell on heavily in the first point of this sermon is that Moses had an accomplice. Moses wasn't the only one guilty of unbelief in verses 1 through 13. So was Aaron. In fact, if you look back up at verse 2, you'll notice that the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Then in verse 6, Moses and Aaron went before the Lord. Moses and Aaron gathered the people of Israel before the rock in verse 10. And finally, in verse 12, if you want to read that, in verse 12 we read this. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses and Aaron did not believe that God would make water come from a rock if they simply spoke to it. They were both marked by unbelief at that moment. Here, in verses 22 to 29, we see the beginning of God's promise in verse 12 come to pass. With Aaron's death, we are reminded that the wages of sin, the cost of sin, the payment that is due to them, is death. And here we see that it was not a lack of food that would kill the people of Israel, as they had said in Numbers 11. Here we see that it was not a lack of water that would kill the people of Israel in the wilderness, as they said in Numbers chapter 20, verse 5. No, it was not hunger and thirst that was most deadly to the people of Israel and her leaders in the wilderness, but the lack of hunger and thirsting for God's righteousness in their hearts. Unbelief was Israel's greatest threat. And it was found in the hearts of the congregation. And sadly, sometimes it was found in her leaders. Aaron's death reminds us of Miriam's. And it foreshadows another. It foreshadows Moses' death. Like Aaron, Moses would be called up to a mountain to die. Like Aaron, the people of Israel would weep for Moses for 30 days. And like Eliezer stepped into the role of Aaron... Joshua would step into the role of Moses. Aaron was stripped of his priestly robes as though he had disgraced the office. It was a sad and dark day in Israel's history. Their first high priest had died. The high priest who had prayed and asked for the Lord to forgive the people of Israel when they sinned against Him. He died. The high priest who, who ran throughout the camp of Israel, pleading and praying and making atonement for their sins to stop the plague of God's wrath against Him. This man had died. No wonder they wept. Reading these verses, 
you can almost feel the darkness of that day. But can you see the light? Earlier in Numbers, in Numbers chapter 14, verses 26 to 30, God promised the people of Israel that because of their unbelief and rebellion, the entire Exodus generation, all those who came up out of Egypt and were 20 years or older, would die. That was the cost of Israel's unbelief. Here we are soberly reminded that the Lord keeps His promises, even His promises of judgment. And Israel's leaders were not exempt from that judgment, that judgment of dying and being kept out of the promised land. But here in Numbers chapter 20, verses 22 through 29, we are also reminded that the Lord keeps His promises of mercy. Immediately after the Lord made a promise of judgment in Numbers chapter 14, He made a most merciful promise. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 31, the Lord said, But your little ones I will bring in. You will be kept out, but I will bring your children in. That's what the Lord said. Who is receiving Aaron's priestly garments? None other than Aaron's little one, his child, his son, Eliezer. The Lord's judgment on Aaron's sin was harsh but just. And the Lord's mercy to the people of Israel was undeserved but full of hope. He did not leave Israel without a high priest, someone to intercede for them and seek God's forgiveness of their sin. I mentioned that, that Aaron's death foreshadowed Moses' death, but it also foreshadowed another. Aaron's death also foreshadowed another death. It foreshadowed Eliezer's death. Eliezer was a sinner, just like his father Aaron, and so one day he too would die. His robes would be passed on to his son, who would also die. His robes would be passed on to his son, who would also die. Those robes would be passed on and on and on to a priest who would eventually die. And what Aaron's death reminds us of in the storyline of the Bible is that we need a priest who will not die, or better yet, who will not stay dead. We learn from the book of Hebrews that Jesus is precisely that priest. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, you can find Hebrews chapter 7 on page 1004. Hebrews chapter 7. As I said, we, we need a priest who will not die. What we need is a priest who is not actually of Aaron's line. We need a priest of a different order. And Jesus was a priest of a different order. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 17. And hear the author, he's speaking of Jesus. And the order of the priesthood that he belongs to. What order does Jesus belong to? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 17. Speaking of Jesus. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. 
Jesus is a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, Jesus was not a priest, sorry, Aaron, Aaron was not a priest forever. Eliezer was not a priest forever, and neither was his son. But Jesus was and is a priest forever. And now reflecting on that statement, just a few verses later, the author of Hebrews, look down at verse 22, says this, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This makes Jesus and the covenant that He administers better than the line of Aaron and the covenant that He administered. Why? Well, keep reading there at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But He, speaking of Jesus, but He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Do you see how great a priest Jesus is? He never sinned against God like Aaron did or like you have or like I have. He never disobeyed God's voice like Adam did, like Aaron did, like you did and like I have. Jesus always upheld God as holy in the sight of all people. Jesus was perfect in the sight of God and yet He like Aaron, he went up to Mount Calvary to die. And he was stripped of his robes and nailed to a cross. He was disgraced for your unbelief and my unbelief. He endured mockery and shame for your sin and my sin. He endured the wrath of God and the wages of sin. He died on Mount Calvary. But unlike Aaron and the little ones who followed him, death did not prevent the Lord Jesus from continuing in office. No, for three days after his death, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead so that he might hold his priesthood permanently. And because of his resurrection from the dead, he continues forever. What has been the endless cycle of death did not continue to be. Now read verse 25 of Hebrews 7. Consequently, that is because of his death and resurrection, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus is the high priest who saves those who come to Him in repentance and faith. And friend, if you are here this morning and you are a, a, not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to encourage you not to continue on in unbelief today, but to come to Jesus Christ in faith today. The truth is, is that you and I are just like the people of Israel in Numbers 20. We have complained and grumbled and rebelled against God. You and I are just like Moses and Aaron. We too have struggled with our own unbelief, 
We've struggled to listen to the voice of God and obey His voice. Friend, you are in danger of being shut out of the promised land of heaven because of your unbelief. But you do not need to be, for Jesus is the great high priest who has lived and died and been raised for sinners like you and me. If you are struggling to believe, then make this your prayer. Lord, help my unbelief. And He helps those who humbly call upon Him, confess their sins, and depend upon Him for salvation. And friend, if you want to know more about what it means to trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, then do please come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk with you more about what it means to trust in Jesus as our great high priest. As Moses and the newly robed Eliezer came down the mountain, the people of Israel grieved the loss of Aaron. But they could also dare to hope that the Lord would keep His promise to bring them into the promised land of Canaan. What has been death after death after death in the wilderness would not always be. The Lord would bring His people into the promised land of Canaan. And that is because our God is a promise-keeping God. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. In just a few moments, we will do something as a congregation that we have done over and over again. We will celebrate the Lord's Supper. And in the Supper, we will remember this promise that the Lord Jesus Christ will come again and gather us to Himself. In this Supper, we are proclaiming that what is past is prologue. He has come once, and He will come again. This meal that we have celebrated so many times in the past is also prologue to the meal, to the marriage supper of the Lamb that we will celebrate with the risen Christ when He finally gathers us into the promised land of heaven. In this meal, yes, we are taking a road that so many saints have traveled before, but this road, unlike the others, this road is ordained by God for our edification and growth in the faith. In this meal, we also remember that what has been will not always be. The sin that we wrestle with will not always be. The death and decay that are all around us, just like the, the deaths of Miriam and Aaron, were all around the people of Israel, will not always be around us. For when this meal takes place at the consummation of the ages, on that day, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. For our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, has said authoritatively from the seat of his throne, Behold, I am making all things new. Praise God. Let's pray together.